this is Base Layer, brought to you by Arca. I'm your host, David Nage. This is Base Layer, where institutional investors come to learn about crypto. This is David, and this is your new episode of Base Layer. I am so happy about this. We have Angela Dalton, the CEO and founder of Signum Growth Capital. I've gotten to know Angela for the last year. Uh, she came highly recommended from my friend Ariana Simpson and many other people in the space. Uh, Angela has 20 years of experience in global capital markets in the TMT sectors and has long-term relationships with institutional investors and companies. She's served as the managing director for three investment banking firms, UBS, Evercore, and Google. Guggenheim Partners. And so I love, as everyone knows who listens to the show, this move from the institutional side to the, what I always kind of refer to in a fun way, the crypto wacky land that we all live in these days, the blockchains, the digital assets, all of these things that are happening where our friends and family sometimes say, why are you doing this? And so I love hearing why institutional people are moving over to this world of blockchains. And so with that, Angela, if you could just give us a little bit of background. I gave obviously just your brief bio, um, but what we would really love to hear is not necessarily the when Bitcoin moment, but what about the technology from your years of experience in technology, media, and telecom? What about blockchains and what about distributed and decentralized systems really inspired you to move out of that world into this world? Sure. So thank you so much for having me. I um, spent a lot of my career um, analyzing next-gen technologies, and and especially when I was at Guggenheim, I spent a lot of time uh, digging into kind of emerging technologies that were coming in the next three to five years and how they would impact public markets. Um, so as part of this, I did the first uh, deep dive on esports back in 2015, before the Overwatch League launched uh, by Activision, um, and people thought I was completely nuts when I was, you know, kind of running around talking about people watching people play video games and all the metrics around it. And um, I'm kind of comfortable in that space, <laughs> being early. And uh, so I, shortly after that, started digging into blockchain and crypto. And unlike almost any other technology, I couldn't stop myself. I couldn't stop from reading, learning, digging in, meeting people, um, basically in my free time. <laughs> and uh, I had a similar response from most people in institutional, mainly because there was really no, um, you know, quote, way to play this in the public markets. And so, um, I mean, obviously other than Bitcoin, but, but in terms of, you know, traditional public equities. And so um, I did a, I hosted a um, symposium at Guggenheim, a one-day symposium, and just had, you know, massive interest from huge institutional investors, um, you know, like Fidelities, et cetera, big hedge funds in New York, and and actually, um, you know, some who came in from, from the Midwest and the West Coast. And it was really a, um, it was really a moment where I thought, you know, I am passionate about these topics, especially blockchain and crypto. And um, I just am in front of the wrong audience. So I'm going to, you know, do what I did in at Evercore. Basically, um, Charles Myers and I co-founded the business at Evercore, the equities business. And I really missed that moment of, of starting a company. And so I decided, you know what, I'm just going to go off and keep doing what I'm doing, digging in, learning, um, helping investors, um, you know, stay in the trenches, meeting with companies and and see what happens. And so 
about, it took me much longer than I thought to get my broker dealer license about 10 months. Um, so I was working with Charles Myers at Signum, you know, global advisors, uh, or still am working with him. Um, but we decided to set up, uh, we decided to kind of split the company and, um, well, not really split the company. He runs Signum global advisors. I am managing, um, our sister company, uh, which is basically advising emerging tech companies and helping investors understand. And then the other piece of it, sorry to um, keep going, but the other piece of it is really regulatory um, strategy. We spend a lot of time in DC. And um, so this is obviously a huge, um, you know, area of regulatory, you know, kind of education that needs to happen. Yeah, that's something that we can talk about later too, because I think from my perspective, obviously coming from the family office world, I know that a lot of other those of my peers have been concerned about the regulation and the lack of clarity that we've had. I think we're starting to see some over the last few months, and we can talk about that later. But I think that's been something that has been something that has kept people on the sidelines and they have not really been comfortable per se putting in the types of capital that you have seen in your past, you know, not just the half a million dollar checks, the multi-million dollar, billion dollar checks. And so I think that has been something that has slowed that capital coming into the system for sure. One of the things that we're going to talk about is gaming. And I've had a change of thought on this that I'll share with everyone. Angie mentioned that a few years ago she started you know, working uh, on focusing on esports. And I remember that I was at a family office conference. It was a luncheon about three years ago and a very large family office who owned a sports team. They own a coliseum. They own lots of different things in the sporting space. They started talking about esports. And now as a father of two children, I said, my God, this is just wrong. I said, you can't just have kids watching other kids, playing games. Everyone's stuck on their computers. They're all the screen time. They're not playing soccer. They're not going outside. They're not socializing. I dismissed it. And boy, was I wrong. Um, and not because the returns have been so stellar and because there's been so much capital and traction into the space, but because I've missed the social networking aspect of these games. And I've missed that they are working together um, and processing all of this data in real time and coming up with tactics and coming up with analysis. And I've missed all of that. I dismissed it very quickly. So I'm curious, with revenues topping $100 billion a year, give or take, that's probably that number is probably shy of what you know. The video game industry is poised to be the century's dominant form of entertainment. And this is coming from courts recently. As games become more addictive and expensive to play, how will they transform our social relationship as well as our leisure time? That is a huge question um, and a topic that I love to dig into. So I will say that I think that we're seeing a real evolution. Um, and I think that uh, video games will occupy the social networking space. I didn't know we were going to dig into this so quickly, but I'm, I'm excited. Um, so yeah, back in 2015, when I said I you know, sounded like I was nuts talking about this, I had a little bit of a cheat because um, my son is my secret weapon. And I loved video games as a kid. And um, my son was really into uh, Minecraft when it came out. Um, he had his own server that he was managing. He got into League of Legends, um, which is kind of the uh, you know next uh, level of beyond Minecraft for that kind of a gamer. And um, I was just fascinated by it. And I think I was the only mom in Brooklyn not slamming the computer on my son's fingers because I, I thought it was pretty cool. Mm -hmm. And I could see that 
it was so much more engaging and developing skills in him that were so important in terms of, you know, strategic thinking, communication, live communication on the fly with teammates that was exactly like traditional sports. And um, also there was um, a true competitive spirit. This is the thing that in 2015 that I had a really hard time explaining um, to people who like regular sports. The idea that this is truly the same competitive feeling you get uh, as when you're playing lacrosse or any other sport. And I think that, or basketball or football or whatever. So I think that, um, I think that that, um, that is the first thing to understand is, is, is that I don't think that there really is any difference. And I don't think we're going to call them esports, regular sports. They're just, they're just sports. And, um, so I think that we've gone, we've gone from a world where, you know, I would say maybe like from the, the eighties to the, to the, to the two thousands, this is more about social, you know, video games taking the place of social media. Um, you know, in the eighties to the two thousands, we had this kind of pure analog world in terms of status. And we had the house that we lived in, the neighborhood that we lived in, both of those conveyed probably the most status in our life. Um, we had people over to our houses and we had dinner parties with, you know, China on the table and designer furniture and chocolate labs. And, and then we would drive our car, which was our kind of mobile status to other social events. And we wore designer clothes and shoes and we still do all that. Um, but I think that the millennial generation happened to kind of, um, I think the first year the millennials graduated from college was the same year that Facebook started 2003, if I'm not mistaken. Um, mm-hmm. they graduated with a lot more debt. They got married later. They bought houses later. They traveled more. And all of this was kind of happening at the same time that, you know, the iPhone was launched a few years later. Um, the, um, you know, Instagram a few years after that. And there was this kind of shift of so, uh, of um, status from offline to online. And you could do things like travel to Machu Picchu and, and, and take selfies. And you have kind of the same jolt to status that, that you get from that analog world, you know, of decades prior to that. And I think that as this, you know, all of this mobility created a flywheel of kind of constantly refreshing backdrops and, and this rental versus ownership culture um, is also something that feeds into that because you, because status is created much more in a much more fluid way. And the new kind of, you know, deposit mechanism is your iPhone, mm-hmm. um, you know, and Instagram and, and all of that is interesting and great. And we're living it right now, but I think it's, it depends on the physical still. You still have to go to Machu Picchu. You still have to, you know, even if you're renting the runway, you still have to rent it. And um, I think that the next phase and the reason I think that gaming will occupy the space of social media is that in the, in the next phase, you won't need to go to Machu Picchu. You won't need to rent the runway. You won't need you know, you won't need to even have a tiny house, uh, you, you know, or a French bulldog. You'll, you'll basically be able to have all those things if you want them because you'll create them in your own world and you will have more, um, you know, the velocity won't change in terms of status, but the, the location of that status will change. 
And so I want to, there's a point here that this is all going to relate to blockchains and to digital assets, and we're going to get there in a second, but I'm fascinated. So I just went to go see Star Wars, the, the new one, and I loved it. it was great. Um, but I'm sure you know, and I don't know if the listeners are aware that on Fortnite, they, about a week or two ago, they had a massive thing where all of the... The Star Wars characters, the Millennium Falcon, and all the other characters, Darth Vader, were incorporated into the game, and they had a bit of a preview for the movie, if I'm not mistaken. That also compounded with what Marshmallow has done with music on Fortnite. I think he hosted the first virtual kind of DJ clubbing experience you know, in front of 10 million listeners or viewers, or maybe. Can you talk a little bit more about some of the impact that we're starting to see in terms of the numbers? Sure. I think that Star Wars and, and, and DJ Marshmallow's concerts concert was were two of the seminal events basically in the history of the shift. And I think that um, I'll talk about the DJ Marshmallow concert because I think it's more, more important. Um, although I think, you know, Star Wars, you know, having a premiere inside a game is pretty awesome too. And I think we'll see a lot more of that. But in terms of the numbers, I think that you know, the reason the DJ Marshmallow concert was amazing to me, um, and I watched it and it was, it was awesome, uh, was the fact that it happened the day before the Super Bowl. So, you know, most people know the Super Bowl, Bowl garners the highest value advertising of the year, um, because, you know, we get them the, the largest number of tune in, uh, audience. And so you have like, you know, CBS selling 32nd Super Bowl commercials for you know, five-ish million dollars per ad. Um, you've got, um, you know, basically advertisers pay broadcasters. Broadcasters pay the NFL. Everyone takes fat margins along the way. CBS and NBC paid $45 million per game to reach 15 million viewers. Um, you know, then you've got, and then the next day, so this is, the, the Super Bowl is important because it was, it was literally the day after the concert. So the Super Bowl happens the day after the Marshmallow concert. The ratings were the lowest in 10 years. The audience is plummeting, as we all know. And then separately, the head of NBC, what really got my attention is the head of NBC Sports said something like, this was the biggest streaming viewership in history. It was, you know, came in at an all-time high. Um, CBS came out with similar comments. Um, we saw viewership online. You know, all these headlines, viewership online for the Super Bowl was you know, biggest in history. So just to compare the two, the Super Bowl streaming numbers were two to two and 2.6 million concurrent viewers. That compares to 10.7 million concurrent viewers at the Marshmallow concert. So if you think about the, the power of this, you haven't had a tune in moment. I mean, Facebook and Google and all everything that's happened in web 2.0 none of that has picked up a true tune-in experience. We haven't had a tune-in experience since Friends or Seinfeld or, or you know, and, and, and the Super Bowl or, you know, Thursday Night Football. I mean, really, those are the only kind of tune-in experiences we have. And now we have this concert inside a video game where 10.7 million people showed up. So I think that all of this is related to, you know, what we're seeing in esports. Like you said, uh, the esports industry overall has not, really not been that huge. Um, it's mostly a sponsorship advertising, um, world. And I even, you know, kind of my, one of my conclusions back then was it's, it's a huge shift in terms of behavior, but the dollars aren't there yet. We are starting to see the first glimmers of, um, 
you know, metrics that show there is there, there, the dollars are flowing this way. And I think the most interesting data point was, um, it happened, I think it was about a month ago, a month and a half ago. Um, the league of legends championship, uh, media rights sold for $38 million a year. Wow. And that compares, so I just did a quick comparison this morning. I was looking at the ESPN numbers in terms of what they pay. Um, so it it is exactly in line with what ESPN pays for Wimbledon. Wow. So it is, it's these numbers, they're, they're you know, the dollars are, are, are coming. The behavior always happens first, but, I, you know, the, it just goes to the old media mantra, like you follow the eyeballs. The behavior has shifted. The media, I mean, the dollars will follow. So let's talk about that behavior shifting. And so what we're starting to see is with Fortnite, as we just discussed that, uh, PBG is another game that's out there that's getting a lot of attention, League of Legends. All of these games have what is defined or what is called as in-game currencies, or is what I've been calling them, in-game digital currencies. And so why I had this awakening a few weeks ago to gaming as its importance as it relates to blockchains is that it's my opinion that over the last few years, the majority of the ecosystem has been trying to jam a square peg into a round hole. We've been trying to get adoption. We've been trying to look at use cases. We've been trying to say, oh, we can decentralize Facebook. Oh, we can decentralize Twitter. We can do this and we can do that. And we can do this to millions and billions of people out there. But you know this, and I'm sure you can attest to this on uh, you know right now, is that there's about 2 billion people in the world that play games on a fairly routine basis. And each one of those typically has coins, tokens, they have in-game currencies that are used to then buy their character, their avatar, whatever you may well call it, certain things. Skins is a popular phrase. Um, and then there's other things that you can do, obviously, to enhance their power, et cetera, et cetera. As this may sound a little bit kind of amateur to people that are institutional investors, it's really important to understand this because these are digital assets that are being purchased by people using digital in-game currencies. And so to me, there is a natural fit. There is a natural evolution of that demographic, and I'm talking about 2 billion people out there for things like Bitcoin, for things like Ethereum. And I'm not even talking about the idea of compostability yet, where as in these games, you have version one to version two, you can't bring those digital assets that you've purchased over to the new version, or you can't bring digital assets that you purchase in one game to a totally different game. There is this idea, and it's very combative to many people. People don't necessarily agree with it in full fill and full heartness. And some people think that it's actually not real, that there's a real need for it. But there are ideas that blockchains could add a lot of value. Um, so one, you know, I want to talk a little bit more about this 2 billion kind of user demographic and in-game currencies, in-game digital currencies. Do you agree with my thesis, or obviously I want you to disagree if you can, that that is actually the lowest hanging fruit we have for adoption of things like Bitcoin and Ethereum? I agree with you. Um, and I also think that you're, you're spot on when you talk about the 2 billion, because I always say it's, I'd rather merge onto the highway of 2 billion people already doing something than try to get 10 million people to do something new. Uh, and meaning the crypt, crypto uh, community of 10 million. So I do think that the crypto community will be an early adopter adopters in terms of trading um, because of the culture of crypto. And I think that, um, I just think that the more, so I did a deep dive for a company back in 2018 
who was looking at blockchain plus video games. What does this mean? Where can we invest? And I, um, I concluded that it was too early, um, mainly because there was such a huge gap between, um, you know, the crypto world and the video game world. And I felt that cryptographers way overestimated how complicated cryptography is and, you know, the math, et cetera, and, and all of that, which it is. Um, and they way underestimated how complicated the media ecosystem is and how complicated video games are. And I think that the video game world just doesn't get it. And they're, they're likely just to say, you know what, um, we have no incentive to really go down this path because because we have phenomenal business models. We basically just keep making money from our IP no matter where it goes. The idea that we would want any of that IP to roam free is, you know, does it makes no sense. And we also don't understand blockchain. So I felt like there was this big gap between the two. And then the other big thing was really just the technology and the speeds, you know, of Ethereum and Bitcoin in terms of the you know underlying blockchains and not being ready for kind of a prime time. Um, you know, massive game. But I think that there's huge opportunities here because there, when these worlds collide and you get um, people who understand gaming, this is what I was excited about when I met mythical, mythical games, for example, um, and I'm on the advisory board there, full disclosure, um, but, and an investor, but I think that it's, it's important to have video game minded people because making a video game is about making fun. And that's really hard. It's really hard to, um, it, it's easy to underestimate and it's, and it's really hard to actually execute. Mm-hmm. So I think that people who can, who can kind of understand that world combined with people who understand blockchain is extremely powerful because these in-game economies, we've all been talking about them. And like you said, people are already doing this in gaming. People have been selling their world of Warcraft gold on eBay for ever. We've been using V-Bucks to buy skins in Fortnite. People spend $90 on average, you know, in the first year, I think was the latest data that I saw. But regardless, this behavior is already happening. Like you said, it's just not sanctioned by the publishers. So if you, um, if you can tap into that also, the fact that the publishers know this is happening and that they can't capture any of, any of that, any of those dollars. And if you can also, by the way, capture a little bit of that that transaction fee for a software developer, for a creator, for a street artist, for a player, for somebody who, you know, for a kid who used to play Minecraft who now wants to create games. I mean, it's it's pretty blockchain technology is extremely powerful in unlocking these economies. Right. And so you mentioned mythical. So from their site, we believe that true ownership of digital assets, verifiable scarcity, and integrated secondary markets will spawn a new generation of games. These new economies based on digital ownership will bring players, developers, and content creators closer to the games they love. So talk to us about, you know, from your insight, where are they right now? We've had Dapper Labs on recently. Um, we'll have a few other of these folks out there, Blockade Games with Neon District. Where are we? I know in terms of blockchain and gaming that there's been kind of what I would call generation one, where it was, okay, here's a game or here's the first chapter of the game connected to MetaMask, make sure you have Ethereum, do all these different steps, and then you'll be able to play. And it was basically mostly a card game at this time. Um, And this is, you know, in the last two years, you know, as the evolution we're starting to see, I think in 2020, and I'd love for you to opine about this, in 2020, 
from what I'm sensing is that a lot of that disparateness, a lot of that, okay, here's MetaMask, here's the game, here's this, here's that, is going to go away or slowly start going away where you can actually play the game and then you have the ability, it'll be all kind of synchronized in there. So for the user who does not have a lot of familiarity with digital assets and crypto wallets, et cetera, et cetera, it will be more in their workflow. It won't be as alien. And so talk to us about kind of what the next gen, you know, from mythical games and other things that are going on, what's happening from this generation one gaming of blockchains to generation two, and talk to us about, you know, what you're seeing. Great. Yes, I don't think that any players are going to, they're not going to learn MetaMask. They're not going to, they might not even, you know, figure out a wallet um, other than one that's handed to them and, and, and made very easy in terms of UI. So I think that um, Mythical's view, by the way, Mythical doesn't have a token. And, you know, their approach is blockchain agnostic. It is very early. And um, we are seeing that it's the, the strategy really is to start with the gamers and start with a really fun game and then back into whatever blockchain is, is, is working underneath that, that gamer. So I think that, you know, I think you'll see, um, their game adaptable to any underlying blockchain. So, so Microsoft is a really good example. They, at their Ignite conference, they had, you know, I don't know, 50, 50 blockchain sessions. And they talked about Azure blockchain and a lot of different ways, but the only gaming company they mentioned was mythical. Uh, and they said mythical, you know, is among the earliest users of Azure blockchain and they're using blockchain to reimagine game economies. And the, the quote that was most interesting is, um, mythical is using blockchain to let game developers prove that their game currency is scarce or the digital assets like special weapons, a magical power or characters, virtual wardrobe aren't being copied and pasted ad nauseum. So the idea would be that, um, if you're playing on Xbox and Azure blockchain is underlying that, you know, that player, um, that underlying blockchain will enable that player or that creator, um, or that game that's being played on top of, of Azure blockchain to take a cut. I mean, I think that I'm seeing a lot of protocols create games and go down this path of, you know, let's create a game to prove out our protocol. And I think that we're going to get to a world where, you know, mythical is open for business. <laughs> I mean, these protocols, you know, and they've been making games for 20 years and they made games like Call of Duty, several generations of Call of Duty shipped three of the top uh, 10 games in history in terms of revenue. So I think that like this, what I, that, that's what I'm getting at. I think that we're going to get to a point where these protocols go to gaming companies and gaming companies go to protocols that actually, and figure out a way to work together you guys do what you're great at and we'll do what we're great at and, and, you know, we'll all work together. I mean, the, the ideal world is that, or, or the, the world that mythicals envisioning and that I'm envisioning, um, you know, separately and with them is the idea that, you know, let's say you're playing on Xbox and I'm, um, playing on PlayStation and, um, you decide to sell me an asset. Oh, by the way, the other thing that you should understand is that this is, think about, do you have you ever played Minecraft or do you have a kid that plays Minecraft? Mm -hmm. Okay. So, you know, the building crafting world. Mm -hmm. So imagine instead of building, instead of, um, you know, building a building with your friends or, or, you know, something like you would build in Minecraft, building a game. 
So you're like, I'm going to build the best relay game in history and I'm going to, you know, shoot plungers at you. And, you know, it's, it's, um, you know, there's a world backdrop there. There are, um, characters in the game called Blancos, which are, look like plastic toys Mm -hmm. and you can create them however you want. So you can imagine players, um, developers, brands, fashion, um, performers, um, creating, creating characters inside the game and then creating an actual game around that. And it's going to create a lot of competition among developers to create really fun games because they're going to get paid every time one of the assets in the game changes hands. But let's just go back to our example. So let's just say you sell me an asset. Um, and I decide, um, you know, I want to, I want to pay whatever I want to pay for it. Um, let's just say $10. You will go to eBay and sell that game, but instead of going to eBay kind of in a gray market way where the publisher doesn't take a cut of it, the idea would be you would sell that asset through eBay and then all parties, it could be five parties take a cut, the creator, both platforms, eBay, um, you know, the street artist who created the the game, Vans who created the, 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 the asset. So it's, it's really, um, you know, it's really early, but I think that there's huge potential here. I agree. And I think that's why over the last few weeks, I've really determined that gaming as it relates to the adoption uh, and further interest of blockchains uh, is going to be incredibly important going forward. And so I could talk to you forever and we're going to have you on again about this, but I know uh, it's a busy day. The last thing that we like to do with some folks on the show, um, and you may have an answer to this or not, it's nothing tricky, but I always think that you know people that are in digital assets are very well read. Uh, they read lots of books on psychology. They read a lot of books on computer science. They read a lot of books on you know classical economics and different models. And so any books that you've read recently, it could relate to digital assets and crypto and blockchain or it cannot, but anything that you've read recently that was like, wow, this is amazing. I'm telling all my friends and family about it. I find that it's really interesting. And then the other thing that we like to do for those that have listened to the show is I always like to ask people what music they listen to. And I think it does tell about a person's personality if they're working and they're getting really, you know, vibing on classical music or anything else or, you know, electronic music, et cetera, et cetera. I think it's just really interesting to see kind of how people process. So anything that you've read recently uh, and any music that you tend to like to listen to when you're working or you're traveling? Sure. So uh, you're asking me at a good time, by the way, because it's the holidays and kind of my um, one (laughs) time of downtime, um, given I have three kids. So I, let's see, this is in the last few weeks, um, I have read, so, so Console Wars is one that I just listened to, Blake Harris, that's a good one, just is really more the history of it, I mean, that's going to sound really boring because that's kind of the business I'm in and I'm listening to a book about it. Um, oh, 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 Ariana, you mentioned Ariana earlier, she actually put on Twitter interesting books about math, mm-hmm. and one of the books that I read was called Sacred Geometry for mm. Artists dreamers and philosophers, I think. And basically I've just always been really, um, interested more as just, you know, kind of a fun thing in patterns and numbers and, um, artistic formations of numbers. And so, um, there's a lot of 
numbers that appear in nature. And so that's an interesting book just for fun. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, there's another really good book, um, Alchemy, the dark art of the dark art of magic, creating magic. That's a really, really good book. It's basically, it t- talks about magic in business and magic in brands and the idea that you have to have this element of magic. And I think as investors, especially early stage investors, you know exactly what I'm talking about, but that's, that's a really good book. And any music that you listen to? Oh gosh, I listen to so much music. Um, it's great. I'm really, I, I kind of listen to a lot of music. I've got a lot, I've got a, um, I was listening to some Latin music this morning on my way in. (laughs) I like everything. That's good. Um, And then the last thing that we'd like to do with our guests is anywhere that they can find you, get in touch with you. Uh, You are just an encyclopedia of information as it relates to gaming, sports, esports, all things in technology and then blockchain. Where can they find you? Where can they get in touch with you? Sure. So my new site is signumgc.com. And... I have a lot of um, uh, a lot of posts that I've written there on big tech regulation, privacy. Um, it's got a more regulatory bent. I wrote a, a paper on Bitcoin as a so- social financial network um, that I was pretty proud of. And then on Medium, I have a uh, several posts on NFTs and more video game stuff. I'm gonna I'm gonna combine them, but signumgc.com. Awesome. This was Angela Dalton. This was a great conversation about a subject that I am really, really interested in. And I hope you guys all check out her work and the writing that she has had. There is some great articles, uh, especially regarding to privacy. Um, and, uh, you know, again, as I said, Angela is very, very sought after as a thinker in the space, as someone who knows about regulation, about gaming, about technology, about blockchains. And so reach out to her. Um, and if you like this episode, obviously, please subscribe and reach out to Angela. Thank you for coming on and we'll be catching up with you again in 2020 and seeing how everything's going. Perfect. I'm going to send you a lightsaber as soon as we can do that. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, David. For more notes from this past episode about our guest, please go to www.ar.ca slash base layer. Nothing stated on this podcast should be taken as investment advice, which would require a thorough assessment of each investor's personal financial profile and risk tolerance. Statements regarding past performance are not necessarily indicative of future returns. If you like what you're listening to on Layer, let us know. Subscribe, give us a like, or hit us up on Twitter, Arca at Arca, or myself, David Nage at DavidJN79. Let us know, and we'd love to obviously hear from you. For additional resources to help sophisticated listeners like yourself learn about the digital asset space and the financial terms you understand, please visit www.ar.ca for articles, market commentary, videos, and more.